Thanks for tuning in to High Point Assembly's podcast, where you're going to hear a life-giving message that we hope will encourage you no matter where you are in your walk with Christ. Check out our website at highpointassembly.org for more podcasts, information, and how to join us live in person or online every Sunday. We hope this message blesses you wherever you may be listening from. And remember, no matter where you're at, you belong. Today, we're going to cover a very interesting passage, and it is one that if we can grasp and we can truly apply it to our lives, it will spare us from taking some enormous missteps in our spiritual journey. And when you speak of missteps, I find it very interesting that when you talk to people, how often they have, how often you find out they have regrets with regard to their, their overall life. It seems the biggest regret that people talk about is when they've settled for something less than they could have had. When they, for some reason, decided to lower their standards or didn't give the proper effort that they could have or should have, and the ultimate price that they paid was settling for something less than the best. And as a pastor, some of the saddest conversations you can have is with people who have spiritual regrets. When they say, I knew what the Bible said, I knew what God wanted me to do, I believe that I knew what God's will was for my life, and yet I settled for something less than God's best. Well, in our scripture reference today, the Apostle Paul is telling us something of great importance. When we start to experience life living in the kingdom of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, we don't settle for less. We don't settle for anything less than a relationship with Christ alone. Let me explain. The salvation that we have in Christ Jesus is a Jesus plus nothing plan. Nothing needs to be added to our faith because as I have said every week in this series, Christ is enough. And Paul wanted to make this very, very clear in our minds because there are all kinds of false teachings out there that can lead you astray and to take you in different directions. And often that direction is in the wrong direction. Remember in Colossians 2.6, I believe Chris read this last week, he said, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. And I want you to really consider the last words of that statement, continue to live your lives in him. This is a very stern warning because when we start living for other things, we start settling for less than God's best. This even happens to longtime Christians when they, in their spiritual journey, they come across a, a particular dry season. They feel like they're in some kind of a spiritual slump. And so they'll say, okay, I need something new to lift me up. I need a new truth, a new teaching, a new revelation. I need something to lift me out of this funk that I'm in. And instead of crying out, to the Holy Spirit to refresh them, many will fall for something new. And that something new often comes from friends or individuals that you know, and they present it to you. And it promises to add something to your experience in Christ Jesus. It is a Jesus plus something else kind of a plan for your life. But notice Paul's warning in Colossians 2.8. He says, don't let anyone take you captive. The Greek word for captive is a word used to describe the loot or the bounty that was plundered in a war. One Bible translation says, see to it that no one kidnaps you. In other words, see to it that no one kidnaps you, spiritually speaking. 
So this passage that we are going to read this morning, Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23, the Apostle Paul unpacks some of the hollow and deceptive philosophies that kidnaps believers and leads them to a Jesus plus something plan for your life. In Colossae, they were dealing with teachings of Judaism, Greek philosophy, pagan cults. We talked about Gnosticism, and they were all negatively in fact, impacting the church and the people in the church. So Paul is writing in order to say to the Christ followers there, do not be deceived. I want to read this passage in its completely, and then we're going to go back and we're going to break it down as we go along in the message this morning. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 23. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. There are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. It is interesting to me that some 2,000 years ago, the same attack was being made upon Christ, the Christian faith that we find in our country today. Make no mistake about it, ladies and gentlemen, there are dangerous pitfalls and traps that await us while we journey toward our goal of Christ-likeness. And in this scripture, we learn that there are really no new heresies. We find the same error of bad philosophy and theology or misleading ideas being repeated throughout the centuries. And these are the kind of things that can hurt believers. I want you to go back to verse 16. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The first spiritual error that the Apostle Paul takes on here is what I'm going to refer to as hollow ritualism. He is talking about food restrictions, special diets, observances of special days and ceremonies that obviously came out of the Jewish religion and Jewish practices. God gave them many of these, these uh, ceremonies in the Old Testament as a shadow or as a picture. In other words, they were a foreshadowing of, of what would come and that someone that would come was Jesus, the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. The law of the Old Testament always brought our attention back to the arrival of Jesus. So all of this law concerning food and sin and sacrifices and festivals, they were all 
foreshadows. They were needed in order to teach the people, to get them to understand why Christ needed to come in the first place and die for our sins. Well, now Christ has come. His sacrifice is complete. His mission was accomplished. People are saved by the blood of Jesus, and they are living under the new covenant. But the problem was that these people continued to mechanically perform these old rituals. So Paul is sending them a warning, saying that they can destroy the true vitality of your faith. Some of these particular religious ceremonies were rituals concerning the year, the month and a week. An example, there was one called the new moon. It was a monthly observance, but there were others as well. And you may ask, well, what does this have to do with us today? Well, it's simple. He's talking about whenever Christians place a special value on religious performance. As an example, it hasn't been all that long since the Catholic Church relented on its restrictions against eating meat on Fridays. This was an example of a dietary restriction that was designed to impart a religious value to life. Also, many Protestants will give up activities during Lent. That's that 40-day 40, 40 period preceding Easter because they think that it will help to improve their relationship with God. Other people seek to do that by wearing special clothing or certain types of uniforms. Today, many modern, less committed Jews keep a kosher chicken. I said it again. I let, in the first, first service, I said a kosher chicken. I meant to say kitchen. And for the life of me, I don't know why I'm mixing those two words up. Man, oh man. They keep a kosher kitchen. And many of them don't even know why they do it. If you ask them why do they do it, they say, I don't know. It's just a part of our religion. They don't even understand why they're keeping it kosher. In the early part of the 20th century, hardly any evangelical Christian would travel on a Sunday because they were taught through Jewish tradition that Sunday was a carryover from the Jewish Sabbath and that it was wrong to travel on that day. And if you've ever watched the movie Chariots of Fire, you'll see how strongly this view was held. This is the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. In our day, some people will chant mantras without even thinking about the words that they're chanting, while others will literally sit for hours and, and contemplate their navel. And, and I'm, I don't even understand how that improves anybody in any way, but it's religious activity. And still other people will turn a prayer wheel or they will, they will finger religious beads throughout the day. Paul is saying to us that any kind of religious performance that is done without meaning or without any personal significance falls into this particular category. Well, wait a minute, Pastor David. Aren't some of these observances given to us by God to remind us of the truth? Isn't there some value to be gained or meant for our mental or physical well-being by doing them? Well, Paul answers that objection in verse 17. These rituals, he declares, are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, he says, is found in Christ. What he is saying here is pretty simple. Once the reality of Jesus Christ has been realized, the shadows of him are of no value whatsoever. You see, shadows are, are pictures that are given in advance, designed to prepare us for something. But if you have found Jesus, you don't need those shadows anymore. You know, I'm sure most of you have pictures in your home of your family. Well, it'd be like you all of a sudden, propping up those pictures all over the house, 
and you start talking to those pictures and start relating to them, people are going to look at you and they're going to think you've lost your mind. But more than that, you would certainly lose touch with the very people whose pictures you treasure. They're going to be thinking, why in the world is he talking to a picture of me when I'm standing right in front of them at this moment? This is what Paul says is wrong with these shadows. If you still place primary value on the shadow of Jesus after the reality of Jesus has been made known to you, you will destroy your participation in the value of that reality. Does that make sense to you? Today, your and my reality is Christ Jesus. He is the center of all life. He is the source of excitement in the Christian journey that you and I walk. He is the one who accompanies us through life. He is the one who comforts us in times of need. He is the one who strengthens us when we are weak or when we are being tempted. He is a place of refuge that we run to whenever we are troubled, whenever we are uncertain about things going on in our life. To lose him is to lose the source of all excitement and vitality of life. That is the danger of observing shadows, ladies and gentlemen. So Paul is saying to us, therefore, by having Jesus, don't let anyone spoil you by involving you in a mechanical performance that will cancel out that reality. Cults do this all the time. They're very mechanical. They're very ritualistic. They're very repetitious in their approach. They brainwash you. But I think it's important to point out that, that joining a cult is not the only way to let ritualism ruin your life. You can do it right here in church every Sunday morning. I mean, if you merely mouth the words of the songs that you sing, you're doing this very thing. You are entering into a religious mechanical performance. It's mechanical in that not only does it say absolutely nothing to our Heavenly Father, but it destroys something deep inside of you. If you let your mind wander during the prayer of this service, and you're not attentive enough to follow along and silently say amen, if you don't let that prayer be a part of your own personal heart's cry, you're going to turn off the truth. You're going to miss a whole lot from this day. You are unknowingly participating in a form of hypocrisy. It appears like you are here doing something valuable, something that is helpful, when in reality, you're not doing a thing. Turning your mind off while I'm bringing a message and failing to hear what is being said falls into this same category. You know, when I look out on this platform, and I look at your faces, of course it's harder now with so many people wearing masks, most of you appear to be listening to what I'm saying. And your eyes at least reflect an interest in what's going on here. But I know from experience that that's not always the case. Some of you look at it and you're sleeping. And, you know, you need to get more rest the night before. But some of you right now are mentally at home. You're physically here, but you're mentally at home. Some of you are thinking about the roast that's in the oven that you got to get out when you get home. Some of you are thinking about the NFL football game that you're going to watch when you leave here. Some of you are, are playing golf. Some of you are finalizing the details of a business deal that you plan to work on tomorrow morning. Some of you are struggling over a problem 
with your children or with your family. Some of you are wondering about an outfit that somebody is wearing here this morning. And as I look around this place, I wonder how interesting it would be if I could see little captions over your head so I could see where your mind really is. You know, we all find our attention straying from time to time, but you can't let yourself get in the habit of doing that because it's destructive. And it pushes you in the direction of hollow ritualism. It's when you are physically sitting in church, but mentally and spiritually and emotionally, you find yourself somewhere else. And if you are mentally somewhere else, imagine where you are spiritually. And so my question is, do you really think that God is fooled when any of us participate in that kind of a performance? What a low view we must have of our Heavenly Father to think that if we run through some kind of, of religious razzmatazz, that He is honored by that, or that He is pleased with our commitment, our level of commitment. There are several passages in the Old Testament that, where God tells us what He thinks about this kind of a thing, and I don't have time to read all of them to you, but I am going to read one of them in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And this is what God says. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure any longer. That is an honest revelation of what we're doing to God when we act with thoughtless involvement during a public worship service. And do you have any idea what you and I lose with that kind of a performance? The first thing that becomes apparent is that the service itself becomes dull and boring to you. And I'm sorry if I bore you. I try not to. But if you find, what happens is when you get bored, you find yourself wanting to leave. But you feel you got to stay because your family expects it or you're trying to build up a reputation of some kind of self-piety by sitting through this, this horrible ordeal. And sadly, when a large group of people take on the same mindset, church does become terribly dull because the Holy Spirit is no longer moving among us because we're sitting there like frogs on a log with no mind, no thought, no attention to what's even going on here. And it's here where, you see, the church service should be an exciting time of our, of our week. It should be the shot in the arm that we need for our Christian faith. And it is here where our minds and our spirit should be, should be stimulated and awakened, reawakened sometimes, to the reality of the goodness of Christ in your and my life. But, but what happens is all of that starts to dissipate when we become mechanical worshipers. And more than that, what it does is it distances us from Christ. And we no longer walk with him day by day and moment by moment. Have you ever heard the saying, to lose God is to lose yourself? Well, when that happens, all of life becomes dull and all of life becomes empty. Why is that? Because pressures and worry and guilt and fear and stress and loneliness, they have a way of pestering you. And eventually you succumb to the need to have something that will stimulate you. You fall in line with the world's futile search for some kind of an anesthetic to make you feel better. You need something 
that deadens the pain of your boring and dull and empty life, and you get misled, and you go in the wrong direction. I pray that is not happening to any of you here this morning or any of you that are watching online because it's a slippery slope. And that's why the Apostle Paul is warning us not to get caught up in ritualistic, going through the motions kind of a hollow religious activities. There's another thing that can ruin your spiritual life. And he touches on it here, and it's mysticism. And here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about it. In verses 18 and 19, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. In this context, two invariable elements of false teaching were false humility and the worship of angels. This is what was going on back then. In Colossae, there was an ancient teaching that was being propagated among the people. It was a belief that there was this hierarchy of angels between all human beings and God. And those angels had to be placated. They had to be acknowledged. They believed that a, that a person's knowledge increased while pacifying and acknowledging these angels until at last you entered into the fullness of understanding of oneness of all things. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, this ancient heresy is, is very active in our world today. And it falls under the name of the New Age Movement. Many of you I know are familiar with that. The, at the very heart of the New Age Movement in our world is the claim to seek true oneness of all things. They teach that we are a part of a universe of created matter and that we are united in oneness with God. They teach this is the way, and I quote, to escape from being centered on oneself, and it moves us into the fullness of knowledge of the universe. This is what Paul is referring to here as false humility. It claims to move you beyond yourself. But in actual practice, if you examine the teachings of the New Age movement, what you will discover is the entire focus is on self. The goal appears to be developing all of your self powers. This is why it is often called the human potential movement. It's the idea that everything that you have, everything that you need is already inside of you. All you need to do is to bring it out and to develop the possibilities of your full human potential. I saw a motto once that said, the light you seek is in your own lantern. That's the idea here. You already have it all. Now you just need to go and discover it. And there are numerous groups and numerous organizations that help you along in this endeavor. The Esalen Institute, Incancar, Transpersonal Psychology, Transactional Analysis, and EST. They are all a part of the human potential movement. And sadly, most all of these groups were formed right here in the beautiful state of California to help you along. All of them are designed to help you to discover the great potential that is supposedly wrapped up inside of you. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that there is enormous potential in every single human being that was created by God. But things involving your spiritual well-being can only come from God. They cannot come from you and within you. I don't know if you remember that song Whitney Houston used to sing, The Greatest Love of All. The lyrics were, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That is at the very heart of the human potential movement. And as Paul describes, along with this comes this idea of the worship of angels, which opens up a whole world of occult manifestations. You see, our country is full of people who live and communicate with strange spirit beings through astrology and Ouija boards and tarot cards. They, they regularly visit or call or go online and visit psychics and yogis and, and swamis and gurus of all types. And all of these people claim to offer in, an increasing of your understanding of who you are and what you can accomplish so as to fulfill the possibilities of your humanity. And so you might ask, what is the danger of that? Well, Paul spells it out very plainly in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Disqualify you from what? Disqualifies you from the prize. It will eliminate you from the race, removing from you the possibility of experiencing Christ in you, which is what? It's the hope of all glory. That is the great mystery in which God provides for us. We have immediate and continual access to the fullness and deity in Christ Jesus for his help, for his strength, for his comfort along the way, every moment of every day. And such error, getting caught up in this other stuff, will effectively remove from you all opportunity for the continued experience of real and true love, true joy, and real peace in your daily life. If you stop and were to observe the people who are wrapped up in the New Age movement, you'll find very little evidence that they derive any real satisfaction from their experiences. Fascination, perhaps, but satisfaction, no. They're forever seeking. They're never at rest. They, they never experience what the Bible says is that peace that passes all understanding. There's all, they are always on the quest for that proverbial dangling carrot that seems to get further and further away from them the longer they pursue it. That kind of pursuing the wrong things will remove anyone from experiencing the prize that Christ Jesus offers, which is daily fellowship with a fully alive and a fully loving Lord. Verse 18, he says, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. It's a strange translation because the Revised Standard and the New American Standard translation both state such a person is taking his stand on visions. The New Age movement makes a big deal about visions and psychic experiences with various spirit beings. They're enamored with taking trips outside of their body and seeing things that other people cannot see. And all this begins the process of being gradually introduced to strange teachings and strange ideas. So who are these strange creatures, these strange spirit beings that they see in these visions? 
Well, according to the Bible, they are fallen angels. They are demons. And they often masquerade as people who once lived and walked on this earth. And these visions, they say, give some degree of credence to the teachings of reincarnation, which is also quite popular in our world today. And the Apostle Paul attributes these visions to an, incredibly, to an incredible conceit within the individual that claims divine honors for the individual. I want you to see how he puts it in verse 18. They are puffed up with idle notions by their spiritual mind. Eric Fromm was one of the early writers of this kind of a philosophy, and this is what he wrote. God is a symbol of man's own powers, which he tries to realize in his life. But some of the more current New Age writers, they come right out and say what they tried to hide or didn't say before. They say, we are gods of our own universe. And we are complete in complete control of all that happens to us. We are God himself. But I want to share something with you this morning that's a brilliant response from G.K. Chesterton. It's one of the best responses to such a claim, and it's dripping with sarcasm, but I love it. And he's a Christian. He says, so you are the creator and redeemer of the world. Well, what a small world it must be. What a little heaven you must inhabit with angels no bigger than butterflies. How sad it must be to be God and an inadequate God. Is there really no life fuller and no love more marvelous than yours? And is it really in your small and painful pity that all flesh must put its faith? How much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos scattering the stars like spangles and leave you, leave you in the open, free like other men to look up as well as look down. You see, if you claim to be God yourself, then you don't have anyone to look up to. You put yourself in the position of constantly looking down at other people. That's the danger of this folly, is believing of yourself to be some kind of deity. But there is a modern proverb that puts an end to all of this. It says that there are two things that a person should never forget. First of all, there's only one God. And secondly, guess what? You ain't it. So I think that puts an end to that whole theory right there. In verse 19, Paul tells us what's wrong with this teaching. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Someone who becomes involved in this kind of a teaching cuts himself off from the head, Christ Jesus. And when the head is cut off of a human body, guess what? All life ceases. So not only do you lose contact with the head, but you also lose connection with the whole body, which is the church. And no longer are you being fed by teachers and shepherds who are some of the ligaments and sinews that he's talking about here. And therefore, what happens is you stop growing spiritually. You know, it is a proven fact that when people fall into compulsive and addictive habits, they cease to grow emotionally. I'm talking about compulsive habits like alcoholism and drug abuse and even sexual addiction. All of those things, when continually repeated, actually stop the maturation process 
of developing people into responsible human beings. The emotional maturity of, of anyone who is trapped in an addiction ended when their addiction began. And often because that happens in our teenage years, you've got 40 and 50 and 60 year old people walking around this earth with the emotional mentality of a, of a 15 year old. This is where the term arrested development comes from. And this only changes when they stop this compulsive behavior, when the Holy Spirit delivers them from the addiction that they were in. And then a very interesting truth happens. No matter how old they may be chronologically, they must begin growing emotionally at the level of which they began their habit, back as a 15-year-old child. And I mention all of this because there is a terrible danger in, in this kind of a thing. Paul says that, that mysticism, this compulsive following of spirit guides and avatars and whatever else you might want to call them, will always arrest your growth. If you want to grow up and if you want to mature as a man or woman of God, then follow the process of which God has outlined in his word. It was Jesus who said, follow me, because it is the only true way to not just maturity, but especially spiritual maturity. So don't listen to spiritually immature people and get caught up in mysticism. It can destroy your life. Well, there's a third danger that Paul points out, which is called asceticism. And this is how it's defined. Severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. In Colossians uh, 20, or 2, verses 20 through 23, Paul says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental forces, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul is describing an overdeveloped zeal or a, a dedication that goes far beyond true Christian discipline. It seeks to please God through extreme forms of self-denial. Listen, dedication and discipline are certainly a proper and an essential part of our daily Christian walk. There are times when we do things for the Lord simply because we love him and we are being obedient to his written word. That, my friends, is a proper motive. And Paul has already commented on the Colossians because they had a well-ordered, they lived well-ordered and disciplined lives. He says that earlier in this book. But let me warn you, you can make a God of discipline if you're not careful. You can take perverse delight in making yourself do difficult things that can win the approval of others and secretly in your mind, you think you are receiving the approval of God as well. Before becoming a Christian, when he was a monk, and I don't know if you know that or not, but Martin Luther was a monk at one point in his life, he fell into this kind of a philosophy. He would lay naked in his cell all night in the bitter cold. He would beat his body and he would torture himself trying to find that inner peace of the heart. 
Now, there are certainly lesser forms of this, and Paul points them out in our scripture today. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You know, I grew up in a home that was greatly influenced by what our church viewed as wrong, many of which were nothing more than a bunch of man-made rules. And most every denomination has these well-written rules from, a, from church leadership as to why you shouldn't participate in certain things. So when I grew up, we were taught that there were certain things that Christians must always avoid. And if you avoided them, you would therefore be acceptable to the congregation of believers, but you would also be pleasing to God. When I was a kid, we were taught that Christians never danced, that Christians never went to movies, that Christians never played cards, that Christians never wore makeup, and Christians never swam in a swimming pool or the lake with the opposite sex. And these man-made prohibitions were passionately hammered to us every week from the pulpit. This idea of giving up certain things and it's pleasing to God and it is required to maintain your salvation, I believe are dead wrong. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Every single person, believer in Christ, must work out their salvation based upon what God is revealing to them through the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that, and what I believe the Apostle Paul is trying to say is simple. When I became a believer, there were things that I participated in in my life that at the, at the time seemed fine with me. But as I grew up and as I matured in my faith and I drew closer to God and I had the Holy Spirit in my life directing me, there were things that the Holy Spirit started to reveal to me that, that were not productive to my Christian walk. These things that I was participating in were not at all productive in my journey towards Christ-likeness. And therefore, I chose to eliminate those things from my life. They weren't sin, but they certainly weren't helpful to me as I moved toward, forward in my faith. It's just like the Apostle Paul wrote. They, they were acceptable, but they were not beneficial to my Christian walk. You see, I believe it is wrong to make sweeping rules to either do or not do certain things as a way to please God and to stay in his favor. You see, I believe that Christianity is a positive faith. And if you want to know what pleases God, then you need to read the last 12 verses of the 12th chapter of Romans. You won't find anything negative there. So instead, as believers in Christ, we should continually do the things that other people cannot and will not do. That is how we show our faith being demonstrated to a world that desperately needs Christ. Well, Pastor David, what is wrong with, with fasting until one is close to death or refusing to marry or eating only vegetables or, or, or praying by the clock or any other man-made religious rules? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, there are three things that are wrong with that. First of all, it demonstrates that you don't understand your death with Christ. Look at verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? 
To do so is to return to childish behavior, thinking that God will be pleased by your negative approach to life. In the church, this is what we call legalism, which is nothing more than pursuing holiness through self-effort. Instead of accepting the holiness that God freely gives us by faith and then living it out in terms of experience, a legalist, what they do is they look at life and they say, everything is wrong unless you can prove to me through the Bible that it's right. And that, my friends, reduces life to a very, very narrow range of activity. But the biblical Christian, they look at life and they say, God has created this beautiful world for me to live in. Everything is right unless the Bible condemns it or unless I receive convictions from the Holy Spirit to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Listen, some things are dead wrong. We know that. They are sinful. They are harmful. They're dangerous. I'm talking about lying and stealing and murder and adultery and fornication and pride and, and, and breaking the law and idol worship and envy. And the list goes on and on. Those are all sin. God makes it clear in his word. These things are never right. We must be, must be willing to be obedient to God in these areas that he designates as sin and as harmful and as dangerous. But we don't need to jump through hoops and follow all kinds of man-made rules that have no place in the scriptures. And there's a lot of Christians that are involved in that. Second, Paul says that whatever benefit these things may gain, it's only temporary. It all ends in death. Look at verse 22. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. That is why in Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus took the Pharisees to task. And he said this, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. He is saying, you observe these most minute rituals, and outwardly you look so good, but inwardly you're like a tomb. You're like a grave full of rotting bones. Your scrupulous refusal to live normal lives gives you a certain status. It gives you a certain privilege and prestige, but it will all prove worthless to you in the end. Well, the third thing that Paul declares of these things having no value of restraining the indulgence of the flesh. Verse 23 says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Here's the deal. Outwardly, too many of us appear dedicated and disciplined, while inwardly, sin continues to rage inside of us. So deep inside, many followers of Christ are angry. They walk around resentful filled with criticism and ugly words for other people. So what we're doing is we're trying to regulate the externals, the things that are seen on the outside, while inside we need to be walking in the fullness and the freshness of life that only Christ Jesus can offer us. Because it is only in him where we will find that inward purity and that, that inward cleansing that we desperately need 
You see, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, all of these heirs have one thing in common. They lose Christ and his preeminence. And if you've fallen into any of them, you'll lose the vitality and vigor that you have in your Christian life. Life will become dull and, and it will become often desperate. And sadly, this is where many Christians find themselves. And if that's where you are today, then what you need to do is you simply need to return to Jesus for the right reasons and serve him for the right reasons. We must take time to be in touch with our loving Savior, walking in fellowship with him and listening to his direction for our lives that come through the whispers of the Holy Spirit and the impressions that are made upon our heart. He is the only one who can develop this kind of thing in you or I. And at the same time, he is the only one that can prevent you from being captured by the great God of self. He will restore you. He will comfort you whenever you fall, whenever you falter. And in submission to him, you will always find that freedom that you seek and that every one of us so desperately needs. Anthony, you can come forward and help me close this down. You know, I think the, the, the uh, message of this entire uh, second chapter of Colossians can be summed up in verse 10. And this is where the Apostle Paul said, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. The message is simple. You don't need Jesus plus anything else that might get thrown your way. I mean, just look at all the ways that Jesus has been described in this book. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead. Through him, we have forgiveness of sin. He has developed us from the burden of the law. He has set us free from any other power or authority. So let me ask you today, after hearing all of this, who or what is your identity built around? Is it built upon self or is it built upon Christ Jesus and what he accomplished for you and I on the cross of Calvary? Would you all please stand to your feet as we get ready to close this service? Perhaps you're here today or you're watching us online and you really don't have an identity in Christ Jesus. You've never aligned yourself with him. You've never asked him to be your Lord and Savior and therefore you go through life with no joy. You have no real purpose. You just kind of existing. You just go on day by day and you don't feel like you're being challenged by anything because you're in this, you're in this rut. Jesus came not to only give us life, but the scriptures say he came to offer us an abundant life. He came to set you free of all the things that bind you up, of all the things that can, that can hold us down, things like addictions, things like wrong thinking, things like anger, seething anger, and, and habitual unhappiness. And he wants to set you and I free today. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to help to mold your character, to help you make sound decisions. He wants to be in a relationship with you so that he can help direct your life on a path to become more like Christ in the way that you live, 
the way that you respond, the way that you just do daily life. Because it is there where you will find true joy, where you will find true freedom. And in a moment, we're going to pray. And I want to give you an opportunity to receive salvation if you haven't done so. The Bible says to be saved, you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus is the son of the one true God. He is the only way to God the Father. And he came to this earth. And he lived a, a, a sinless life, but he died a horrific death on the cross of Calvary. And the blood that he shed on that cross literally covers or tones. It washes away your sin, but you have to ask for that. He doesn't just do it. You ask him. You acknowledge that he is Lord. You ask him to forgive you. You ask him to be the Lord of your life. And you become, as the Bible says, a new creation. The confession part is just saying all those things in your prayer time to the Lord. He will save you. He will give you a new and a fresh start. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian already, but you've got caught up in some kind of a Jesus plus something religion. You're participating in some man-made traditions that really make no sense in terms of your walk with Christ. They're meaningless. They contradict the freedom that Jesus offers you. Maybe someone is here or watching online and you're dabbling in the occult. Well, let me tell you something, sir, ma'am, you are walking down an extremely dangerous path. You see, there are believers who cross lines. They get involved in things that have their roots into witchcraft and into the occult. And yes, into the new age theology that we talked about so much this morning. And it's a complete contradiction of the Word of God. That's why you need to be in the Word. And it has the capacity to mess you up. It has the capacity to blind you to the truth of the gospel because the two are in complete opposition of each other. The Bible says that a house divided against itself will fall. View your spirit as a house. You're either going to love one and hate the other or you're going to hate one and love the other. You cannot love the occult and love Jesus at the same time. And there are people dabbling in both. You've got to make a decision who you're going to serve. And go back to my original comment, do not settle for second best. Do not settle for something less than Christ and Christ alone. For all of you here this morning, I want to pray for you. And I want to say this altar is always open. If you want to come down and bring your burdens to the, to the lamb at the foot of the cross, you can come down here right now. We have several people at the early service do that. But if not, I'm going to pray. But I don't want you to just listen to my words. During this prayer time, I want you to pray your own words, your own thoughts to the Lord. If you've been challenged by anything that I've said here today, if you find yourself getting caught up in repetitious things of no value, if you find yourself walking on the fringe of getting involved in dark things that have nothing to do with your Christian walk, if you find that, that you don't have the joy in your heart that you want or the peace that passes all understanding, you just need to go to the Lord. You need to tell him this is what's going on in your life and you need to seek him. You need to draw closer to him than you ever have before. He will change your trajectory. He will change your path. You can get back on the right path and you can get back on serving him with fullness and with joy in your life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Precious Father, I thank you for your blessings. I thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. I thank you for every person that is in this place today and those that many that are watching online. Lord, I pray for each and every one of them. 
that they would never get caught up in hollow ritualistic activities. That when we come into this place, we wouldn't just go through the motions, but we would think about the words we were singing. We would think about the words we are praying. We would listen to the words that are presented in the message and we would make them our own. And we would say, Holy Spirit, open up my spirit to receive this and allow it to change and transform who I am to become more like Christ. Father, for those things that we do that are tradition, that mean nothing, Lord, don't let us be bound up by tradition. Let us be bound up by who we know you are and what you would have us accomplish in this world. And Father, for anybody who's walking on lines of darkness and the occult, show them the error of their ways. Let them realize that there is no hope in that. There is only danger to be found and that they would get on a path towards you. Father, I just pray that you would revive us in our hearts and in our spirits and in our minds. We've been going through six months of just craziness. And many of us have gotten off track. We've been distracted by the news of the day and we've lost touch with you. We've lost intimacy with you. We've even lost coming to church or even watching it online. And some have got comfortable with that. Some are thinking, well, maybe I don't need this in my life anymore. But Lord, we know that that only leads to death. We want the eternal life that you offer us through Christ Jesus. So I pray that you would reignite in all of our hearts the truth of who you are, what Jesus did for us on the cross, and what he promises us when our time on this earth is done. And in the meantime, we can live a life of joy. We can live a life of peace. We can live a life where we are satisfied no matter where we are, economically or socially or with friends or without friends, God, we can live a peaceful life knowing and having a completed relationship in you. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that something was written that was written 2,000 years ago can be so meaningful to us here today, but that's the truth of your word. It never changes. It applies to every circumstance and every time of existence. So Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that you would encourage and strengthen those who need it. I ask that you would build us up in our spirit being to be strong men and women of God. I pray that you would give us a boldness and a confidence in our faith to do those things that you have called us to do. That you would give us an, a boldness to share your goodness with other people. In fact, God, I pray that you will open up opportunities and doors for us to share our faith with family and with friends who desperately need to know you. And then God, your spirit, your word says that your spirit will give us the words to speak. If we'll just be willing vessels, God, you will use us. And we will hear things come out of our mouth that we never dreamed would come out of our mouth because you've guided and directed our steps. So be with us. Help us to do that. And Lord, I pray as we leave here today that your spirit would guide our steps, the things we do, the places we go, the conversations that we have, that they would all be uplifting, that they would bring glory to the sacrifice that Christ made for us, that we would be partakers of encouragement or, or speakers of encouragement and that we would encourage one another and we would encourage those who need it and we would shine the light towards Jesus Christ. Most importantly, Lord, I pray that you'll keep us safe until we gather together again. Keep us safe from COVID, keep us safe from accidents and diseases and sicknesses and keep us strong till we gather together again next week as we come and worship you in spirit and in truth and as we learn your word and how we might apply it to our lives. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your faithfulness. We give our lives to you. We dedicate them to you. And we ask you to use us greatly. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. And everyone in this place said, 
Amen.